Thank you, Mr. O'Gwen, and greetings to all 149 of us today. I like that. 49 is 7 times 7 plus 100, so there must be some good, encouraging meaning in all of that. Well, welcome to our guests, and uh, particularly Mr. and Mrs. Whitaker. We appreciate having them here this week and uh, getting to know them. I want to give greetings to all our brethren around the world. As you know, these sermons do go out uh, to our brethren around the world. And uh, we want you to know that we are enjoying Charlotte here today, even though the temperature is 94 degrees Fahrenheit. This is weather that Mr. Partian really enjoys. I think you know that. In December 2002, our international headquarters uh, were in San Diego, California, one of the most beautiful climates in the world. And in preparation for Charlotte, uh, personnel had pre-moved trips to locate housing here in Charlotte from San Diego. Mr. Partian always enjoys warm weather, and he made two visits to Charlotte to try to find housing in December 2002 and January 2003. And on both occasions, he was met with freezing ice storms here in Charlotte. So today, at 94 degrees, you understand why Mr. Partian has a smile on his face. But uh, we again appreciate the warmth of uh, God's people and the love and fellowship that you're all sharing. What is your most precious physical possession? Now, some of you might say your Bible, and that would be a very good answer. Some of you might say your little boy or your little girl. When I asked my wife, uh, she answered, What is your most precious possession? She said, my mind in good order. I thought that was a good, uh, good answer. Well, the human mind is absolutely marvelous. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote about the human mind and the incredible human potential. On page 68, he wrote, Can your mind grasp what matchless wisdom, power of designing and planning made our transcendent human potential possible? God first formed plant life, the flora, this was living matter reproducing itself, but without self-consciousness, without brain. Next, God created the fauna, animal life, in which he placed brain with a certain consciousness, yet without the thinking, reasoning, decision-making processes. But man, to be reproduced into the God family, was designed to have a godly-type mind. Now here, Mr. Armstrong describes some of the functions of the human mind. Ability to think, reason, make choices and decisions, develop godlike character. He writes, how could all this be done? Actually, the brain of an elephant, a whale, or a dolphin is virtually equal in complexity, design, and quality, and larger in size than the human brain. The chimpanzee's is also virtually equal, but slightly smaller in size. Why then is the human mind so transcendentally superior to human brain? Scientists, most scientists, cannot answer that question. The mind has been a mystery to scientists for many years and ages past. I want to ask you today, what are you doing with your mind? Are you wasting your mind? Are you nurturing the brain that supports your mind or vice versa? And are you, sometimes we hear, are you losing your mind? Have you heard anyone say, I'm losing my mind? 
What does God tell you to do with your mind? Let's turn to Mark, the 12th chapter, Mark 12. And here we find a quote, of course, from Deuteronomy, the 4th chapter. Deuteronomy 4, the Shema, as it's called. But here in Mark, the 12th chapter, Jesus adds one other element to how we are to love God. Mark 12 and verse 28. Jesus is answering the question from one of the scribes. Verse 29, he says, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Now, we really need to think about that, brethren. Do we really love God that way, wholeheartedly, with every part of our soul, heart, mind, and strength. When you think of your body, of course, the dualists who think about the immortality of the soul separate the mind and the body. When you realize you are complete, that your mind controls every fiber of your being, from your toenails to the top of your head, and it's a good concept to think about loving God from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes with your whole being. I remember Dr. Meredith used to emphasize that so much in the past. And one little boy talked about uh, loving God with his whole being, B-E-E-N, being, misunderstood. But we are complete in Christ. But we need to ask ourselves, are we really loving God that way? The title of the sermon is, Love God with Your Mind. And can you say that you are loving God with your mind and with your heart? And how can you love God with your mind? First of all, let's just briefly discuss what is the human mind. The human mind has been a mystery to scientists. And the difference between human mind and animal brain in terms of qualitative characteristics is enormous. How would you describe that difference between the human mind and animal brain? It's an incredible truth that few on the face of the earth understand, but you understand it. It's an incredible truth. One difference is that animals cannot understand the quality of time and space. In his book, Manhood of Humanity, The Science and Art of Human Engineering, 1921 book by a semanticist uh, named Alfred Krzybski. He outlined the different forms of life, and this is what he called plant life, chemistry binding. Animals he called space binding. Human beings alone, however, he identified as time binding. Beings capable of learning from experience and passing what was learned across time to succeeding generations. Animals cannot do that. Korzybski called this structural difference between humankind and animals. So he said, human beings alone are capable of learning from experience and passing on what was learned across time to succeeding generations. We've seen that in science, the development of engineering, technology, that one generation passes on the knowledge to a future generation. But as we have that capability, have we learned the lessons of history? And, of course, you can see our telecast on that subject of the lessons of history. Because human beings, because they are not learning the lessons of history, will have to learn and relearn those lessons in the white throne judgment 
you know, as their past lives come flashing before them. So one difference between human mind and animal brain is time and space. Another is language. Korzybski wrote in Science and Sanity, an introduction to non-Aristotelian systems and general semantics. He contended that humans progress largely as a result of, more, of a more flexible nervous system capable of symbolism. Language allowed us to su summarize or generalize our experiences and pass them on to others. This linguistic generalizing ability of humans, Korzybski contended, accounted for our amazing progress over animals. But the misuse, of course, of this mechanism accounts for many of our problems as well. No animal can produce the wide-ranging depth of human thought. Humans are unique, but they are incomplete. Human beings are not all there. As we said so many times at the feast, you know, and at Sabbath services, why are we here? We're here because we're not all there. There's something missing in us. What is your mind? Your mind is the spirit in man combined with the human brain. And almost no scientist, psychologist, or psychiatrist understands that truth. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. 1 Corinthians 2. I was uh, taking a graduate class one time, and the classic question came up. What is the human mind? And my professor could not really understand. He could not explain what the human mind was. And it is a mystery. Now, there are definitions, psychological uh, definitions and so forth. But what is the reality? 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? An animal doesn't know the things of man because he doesn't have a human spirit. It's the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So the natural man does not know, does not receive, verse 14, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the difference between animal brain and human mind is the spirit in man. All human beings have the spirit in man. And if you want to research hominids, which are called pre-flood uh, creatures, how do you discern whether they were really human beings or not? The way you discern is whether there were fruits or characteristics of the human spirit in those hominids or in those creatures. But brain scientists describes the human brain and the human mind. Atheists try to describe the human mind in terms of physical material methods or elements. In other words, there's no spirit element to human beings. We've got to describe it all in terms of chemical reactions or by uh, electrical uh, movements in the uh, nervous system. But Dr. Robert Kuhn was a research scientist in brain research, and he was uh, attended Ambassador College, was an administrator at Ambassador College. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong quoted from him in the 1970 Plain Truth magazine personal from the editor, January 1970. Mr. Armstrong quoted Dr. Robert Kuhn. Quote, this is Dr. Kuhn writing, The brain is a computer, cries the materialist, pointing out parallel 
concepts in cybernetics and neurophysiology. Information in the brain is simply the presence or absence of an electrochemical discharge. The presence-absence is precisely the same as the yes-no flip-flop of a computer. True enough, the brain is enormously more sophisticated in potential pathways in microcircuitry. And this is an amazing fact he points out. There are upwards of 10,000 to 50,000 independent nerve cells in every cubic millimeter of cerebral cortex, 10 to 15 billion altogether. Now, a cubic millimeter is, is a little tiny cubic. And he's saying that there are 10 to 50,000 independent nerve cells in every cubic millimeter. He goes on to write, each nerve cell... Uh, each nerve cell is able to receive simultaneous information from thousands of cells, integrating and then funneling this new information to many other cells. Consequently, Dr. Kuhn writes, the permutations and combinations of circuitry and sequences becomes astronomical, end of quote. I was uh, wondering just what uh, my brain capacity was. Uh, I won't ask what yours is, but... <clears throat> the thought occurred to me, how much storage do you have in your brain? How many gigabytes of storage do you have in your brain? Actually, there was a question asked of a, uh, a media program entitled uh, Science Update. And this listener, Ryan Benning of Fresno, California, asked, how many gigabytes of storage does the human brain have? And so the program consulted Robert Burge, a chemist at the University of Connecticut. He says there's no definitive answer, but the brain, because the brain doesn't store information the same way a computer does, we can only try to estimate. So Robert Burge of the University of Connecticut states, quote, if each neuron were a bit of information, then you would have five terabytes of information in the human brain. Now, all of us computer experts know what a terabyte is. You start off with... Uh, well, more recently, it's uh, a megabyte, and then a gigabyte, and then a terabyte. And then the teraflops, of course, are uh, trillions or hexillions, quadrillions of calculations per second. Computers can do that. So he goes on to say, but I suspect the human brain is storing much, much more than that, maybe 30 to 40 terabytes. <coughs> and then, <coughs> excuse me. And then the, uh, the host of the program, Bob Hershen, goes on to say, that's because the brain stores information in packets through connections between neurons. So let me go back here to uh, Dr. Kuhn's article. But the storage capacity of your brain is incredible. And then one estimate is up to 30 or 40 terabytes of information. You didn't know you had that much information in your brain, did you? No, it's amazing, and I don't know if it's happened to you, but every once in a while, there'll be a little, maybe a scent that I haven't smelled for years, and all of a sudden, it's a flashback of something that happened to me 40 or 50 years ago, and I hadn't had that thought in 30 or 40 or 50 years. And it just tells you what is there stored in your brain. Now, Dr. Kuhn comes on, continues in his article in the Plain Truth magazine, January 1970, quote, but is human mind entirely the same as animal brain? That's the crucial question. 
And to find the answer, we submit this fundamental issue to the unbiased arbitration of brain research. Quote, representative mammalian brains can be weighed, and in descending order they are, in terms of weight, whale, elephant, dolphin, man, gorilla, champ, chimpanzee, and rat. I don't know if we want to be compared to rats, but <laughs> comparative anatomical studies reveal a uniformity of distinct brain structures. Each structure is present in every brain of those mentioned, though their relative sizes vary. There is no qualitative difference among all the mammalian brains. Mentally, of course, man is unquestionably supreme. That's obvious. But he doesn't have the largest brain, and that's surprising. And so Dr. Kuhn and others have come to the conclusion through their studies and their research that the only answer to the difference between mind output of human beings and brain output of animals is a non-physical element. And we found the answer to that in 1 Corinthians 2. It is the human spirit. It is the, man, the spirit in man. So we briefly discussed the human brain and mind. So next I want to ask you, do you really appreciate your mind? Are you taking care of your mind? Mr. Whitaker, in his sermonette, discussed the matter of opportunity. And it's sad that many in the world are illiterate. Even though they have human minds and brains, they still are illiterate. The CIA World Factbook notes that over two-thirds of the world's 785 million illiterate adults, so there are 785 million illiterate adults estimated in the world, and over two-thirds of them are found in only eight countries, Bangladesh, China, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Pakistan. Of all the illiterate adults in the world, two-thirds are women because, you could comment, because they don't have the opportunity. Extremely low literacy rates are concentrated in three regions, the Arab states, South and West Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa, where about around one-third of the men and half of all the women are illiterate. And that's from the CIA World Factbook. So you have a physical mind, and you have a brain. Are you really using that brain? Let's turn back to Isaiah, the 40th chapter. We see that perhaps we have 40 to 50 terabytes of storage in our brains. And yet, what is God's storage in his mind? Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verse 25. Isaiah 40. Mm. Yeah, that cold tea tastes good on this hot day. It's supposed to be warm, by the way. <clears throat> no, I'm not complaining. I'm just describing the element. You know, there's a there's a difference between complaining and explaining. And I'm just mentioned a fact. That's all. It does taste good. <clears throat> Isaiah 40, verse 25. God says, "To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal?" Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. And, of course, the uh, traditional estimate of 
galaxies and uh, stars, was there were 100 billion galaxies, and each galaxy has 100 billion stars. And since that uh, traditional uh, summary, it's gone on and on to some places where scientists or astronomical uh, physicists are saying it's infinite. They can't count them. They can't even estimate the number of astrobodies. And yet God knows every one of them. He knows every, the name of every single astrobody. And if God knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, and of course some of us it's an easier count, but for others, uh, you know, it's quite extensive. God knows every hair on your head, and I would also suggest that He knows every molecule of your body. If he knows everything, uh, knows all the elements of all the astrobodies and all their names. So we need to exercise our mind and our brain. And, of course, there are health uh, principles for that. There are several uh, research uh, studies that have shown that exercising, that is, does help the brain because you're circulating oxygen. Uh, this is from Newsweek, uh, March 26, 2006. Exercise and the brain is the uh, cover article. For the first time, scientists have coaxed the human brain into growing new nerve cells simply by putting subjects on a three-month aerobic workout regimen. And so they found out that uh, with working with students, regardless of socioeconomic status, uh, they, their intellect was boosted by uh, aerobic exercises. And then, of course, there are the brain teasers and the brain exercises that even without um, exercise, uh, hydration is good as well. But this one article, Charlotte Observer, brings out by Dr. Vicki Parker, Director of Learning Prescription in Charlotte, that uh, actually not just exercise and not just drinking water, which are both good for us, found that 14 cognitive training sessions, adults in a cognitively trained group outperformed a control group five years later in the areas trained. So they had challenges to brain training, and there are all kinds of uh, exercises in doing that, memorization, puzzles, uh, other kinds of studies. And I think I've given you that puzzle before. I, I hesitate to do it because you probably won't hear the rest of the sermon, but I'll give you the puzzle anyway. And, uh, and challenge you. If you put nine dots on a piece of paper, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, try connecting those nine dots with four continuous straight lines. Now, I suggest you do that a little later on, but let's uh, continue with the matter of uh, developing our brains and our minds. We need to seek knowledge. There's one woman I quoted to you before about uh, Mr. Armstrong and uh, how he felt that for the first time in 1972 or 73, when he was in his 80th year, or when he actually turned 80, he said, and I remember, I was there in Big Sandy when he said it, uh, he said, brethren, I am in my 80th year, and I have learned more in my 80th year than all my other years put together. Now, again, he was, uh, that's the way he felt about it, whether it was a, a technically accurate statement. Uh, we'll find out in the millennium or later on. But nonetheless, God was revealing to him spiritual understanding and a depth of spiritual understanding that he had not had before that time. 
So some of us who are getting up towards that age need don't don't ever give up hope. In fact, this uh, Nobel Prize-winning scientist, an Italian senator for life credit, uh, credits years of experience. And this is from the Charlotte Observer, April 19th of this year, 2009. Uh, her name is Rita Levy Montalcini. And uh, she was 100 years of age. She was a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, this is what she says. At 100, I have a mind that is superior, thanks to experience, than when I was 20, she told the party. So again, anyone in here, 100 or over? So there's still hope. And those of you who are 20, remember that when you become 100, you can be sharper than when you are 20. But we need to take care of our brains and our minds, and we need to seek energy, we need to seek truth, we need to seek knowledge. So the next section I want to cover is that of honoring God by seeking knowledge. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can honor God if we seek knowledge. But how do we seek knowledge? You know the scripture, but let's turn there to Proverbs, the first chapter. Proverbs 1 and verse 7. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yes, there's carnal knowledge. There's the worldly knowledge. And that worldly knowledge may lead to vanity. As Paul wrote in Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. Those who are intellectually vain have their minds puffed up. But the fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. And of course... Ambassador University and Living University had the foundational principle that the Word of God is the foundation of knowledge. And that's on the cornerstone of Ambassador Hall in Pasadena, California. I mentioned uh, knowledge puffs up. That's 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And I recommend also along the lines of being puffed up in pride, that you listen to Dr. Scott Winnell's sermon, number 514, Remember Who You Are. He discusses the dangers and the characteristics of pride versus humility. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. Let's turn to 1 Kings, the third chapter, 1 Kings 3, and we'll look at the experience of one individual who had a great deal of knowledge. 1 Kings 3. And starting with uh, verse 4. Remember that uh, Samuel was going to anoint uh, Saul as uh, king. And so here in uh, 1 Kings 3, and uh, let's start with uh, verse uh, 7. So Solomon says, in his prayer, Now, O eternal my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. I mean Solomon, rather, I said Saul. Uh, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. Well, God has called us, brethren, to be kings and judges, kings and priests, and priest judges. And we need to have sound judgment, sound wisdom, 
We'll talk about that a little later. The speech pleased the Eternal that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. And God tells him he's going to give him riches and honor in verse 13. But he cautions him to walk in my ways, verse 14, keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon grew in wisdom and knowledge. In verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Yes, probably 40 terabytes of uh, storage. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men in the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now listen to this, verse 32 of 1 Kings 4. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. Now can you speak one proverb? Proverbs 9, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I know one. And of course, Proverbs, uh, sorry, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowledge, Proverbs 1.7, wisdom, knowledge, uh, Proverbs 9.10. But he spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Have you uh, created any songs? Some of you might be a composer or so. I have tried to compose songs, and uh, sometimes I sing in the shower, and, and I think I've composed a brilliant song, but I forget it, you know, just a, a little while later. But Solomon was just really incredible. Now notice, not only that, but he spoke in verse 33 of trees, from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And I'm glad that uh, some of our young children, particularly some of the young boys that get interested in dinosaurs, you know, can, can educate me in all the different kinds of dinosaurs. I think I told you that story before when we were taping a television program at Dinosaur National Park in Vernal, Utah. Uh, just a whole wall full of dinosaur bones and had an exhibit, and here was this little boy, five years old, and his brother, three, and there was a little uh, exhibit of this model dinosaurs. And his little brother was saying, well, now, Johnny, is, is that a Tyrannosaurus rex or is that a Brontosaurus? And his older brother said, well, well, Jimmy, you should know that a Brontosaurus only has three fingers while the Tyrannosaurus rex has two. So, I mean, here's this five-year-old lecturing his three-year-old on the elements of the dinosaurs. And, of course, I think uh, some of our children know all the different kinds of, of whales. There's the humpback whale and, and the... Um, uh, you know, the uh, killer whale and all the other kinds of whales, which reminds me, I, I shouldn't digress, but, uh, you know, I was watching Animal, Pla Animal Planet the other night, and uh, this uh, scuba diver was uh, videotaping underwater a pod of herring, and he said, yes, they're all podding up now, a huge herd of, of pod of herring, and, and uh, Seagulls were attacking from the, the, the top, and dolphins were attacking from the, from the bottom. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this huge, gaping, humpback whale comes from nowhere 
with jaws this big, and he swallows the whole pod of herring. And uh, I mean, the the uh, uh, the uh, scuba diver was just—he says, "I've never seen anything like this in my life." Neither had I. It was an incredible, incredible view. But Solomon knew about animals. He knew about plants. He knew about trees, and uh, creeping things, and a fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, verse 34. So we need to seek knowledge, and I hope that all of us understand the desire that we need to educate ourselves, that really the solution to the world is, of course, the return of Christ. But beyond that, the solution requires world peace to be brought about by education, a re-education. And it isn't just that there is going to be a government of peace over all the earth, because Christ is the Prince of Peace, but people will be taught the way of peace. They cannot be peaceful unless they know and are educated to God's commandments, His laws, His statutes, the relationships of how to love one another, how to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And we, as God's kings and priests in the millennium, will have to re-educate people. But we must be educated ourselves. And Proverbs 17, 16, I don't know if you're in Proverbs, no, we were in First Kings, but just uh, another one that often happens to students who do go to college. And I know I was somewhat that way. I had a scholarship to uh, an engineering college, and uh, I enjoyed, uh, you know, I did well in the courses that I enjoyed, but I didn't discipline myself to study hard in the courses that I was uninterested in. And so it tells us, it warns us here in Proverbs 17, verse 16, in terms of our approach to education. Why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom, since he has no heart for it? And we found that throughout Ambassador College and many years of teaching, that people, if they don't, uh, they may have the money for it, but they don't have the heart to learn. And all of us, if we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we need to have the heart to learn and to study God's way of life and true education and to apply it and later teach it. Of course, there are many opportunities for education for all of us. We have the Tomorrow's World Bible Study Course online and, and the hard copy. And uh, now we have what we're reaching 140 or so nations around the world um, online and uh, with a hard copy. Uh, it's just wonderful to get uh, someone uh, calling in from... Uh, uh, Cyprus or calling in from uh, Uzbekistan or even from Pakistan uh, saying, I want to study your Bible study course online. And we are pioneering, of course, for tomorrow's world. It's just wonderful. John 8 and verse 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But he said in verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. In other words, you've got to abide in his word. You need to know his word. You need to internalize his word and have it a part of you. We just thank God for the truth and true knowledge. And we all understand that uh, we are living in an age of evolutionary philosophy. And uh, that evolutionists deny, whether they realize it or not, are denying reality. Because God says in uh, Psalm 14 that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. As I said on one telecast about the proof of God, I didn't say that. God said it. You know, you are a fool if you don't believe in God, if you know God. 
So evolutionists have, uh, are denying reality. The greatest reality is the existence of God and who and what He is and our relationship to Him. Carl Sagan uh, really downgraded or uh, denigrated the whole idea of the meaning of life. And he wrote in his book, Broca's Brain, uh, pages 285, 286, he said, There are many legitimate scientific issues relating to origins and ends. What is the origin of the human species? Where did plants and animals come from? How did life arise? The earth, the planets, the suns, the stars. Does the universe have an origin? And if so, what? And finally, a still more fundamental and exotic question, which many scientists would say is essentially untestable and therefore meaningless. And that question is, why are the laws of nature the way they are? Is that a meaningless question? Well, they're still trying to figure that out. In fact, Stephen Hawking, um, who is uh, try getting near the end of his life and who wrote The History of Time, and who, of course, uh, pointed out that time had a beginning and the universe had a beginning, uh, he is trying to figure out the purpose and the meaning of the universe. Why is the universe here? Why is it here? He can't answer that question. We know why it's here. It's here waiting for the children of God, the children of the resurrection, to inherit the universe after we have inherited the earth and taught and uh, ruled with Christ for a thousand years. Not only was Carl Sagan off base, but Aldous Huxley, Aldous Huxley. And I hope you all have the latest Tomorrow's World magazine, the uh, July-August issue. Dr. Meredith's uh, editorial is called Spirit Warfare. And this is what he writes on page 30. Why do people try so hard to do away with the concept of a real God, a God with authority who governs the world and intervenes in human affairs? When I was growing up, Dr. Meredith writes, one of the well-known philosophers and intellectuals made the following admission, quote, For myself is no doubt, for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of confusing these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. End of quote. As Aldous Huxley ends and means page 270. Dr. Meredith continues, Do you see? These so-called intellectuals, now increasingly in charge of our whole way of life, even our businesses and our banks, have the basic concept expressed above. They do not believe in the God of the Bible. It is just as simple as that. Such a belief and such a respect for the inspired Bible is rejected because, quote, it interferes with our sexual freedom, end of quote. Paraphrasing Huxley's comment. Of course, other vanities and lust for money and power enter into the equation as well. So those who have sought knowledge and yet have denied the foundation of knowledge are, as God would call them, fools. They don't know the truth. 
But you have the truth, and you need to continue to seek the truth and to seek to educate your mind, your brain, and keep it healthy and keep it alive. There are, of course, uh, living university classes, and I hope that many of you will sign up for them in the fall. And uh, again, you need to put your heart into it if you do sign up. There are, by the way, <clears throat> a trend in online universities. MIT, Harvard, and Yale, and many of the major universities are putting free courses online. And uh, I did <clears throat> test or take a look at one of them the other day. I think it was uh, Introduction to Calculus. I think it was an MIT course, free. And uh, I found the first 10 minutes very interesting. But after that, uh, I lost interest. <clears throat> But there are other classes that are available. This is from Time Magazine, April 27, 2009. Some of the favorite uh, classes that are online free. You don't get credit for them. And this is Walter Lewin, MIT, Physics, Classical Mechanics. It's available on YouTube, EDU, iTunes U, Academic Earth. Um, highlight a death-defying wrecking ball trick. So you want to see that uh, Take a look at that class. Another one is uh, Amy Hungerford, Yale University, English, the American Novel, since 1945. And then uh, one from Stanford University, Geography of U.S. Elections, uh, highlight the dissection of red and blue states. And then uh, from Gapminder Foundation, Debunking Third World Myths, uh, highlight an insanely cool-looking statistics slideshow. Anyway, there are uh, courses, free courses available online these days. We need to seek knowledge, but we also need to seek wisdom. And let's turn to James, the first chapter, James 1. How often do you ask for wisdom? When was the last time you asked God for wisdom? James 1 and verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, one of the elements of godly character is that of patience. And some people say, well, I don't know why I'm having this trial. And they, they're obsessing over trying to find out. Well, we should try to find out. If there is a cause, we need to know the effect. But if we don't know, there is one lesson you should learn from your trial. Patience. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be entire, lacking nothing. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. We need to persevere to the very end, regardless of our circumstances. But he goes on to say, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he that doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. No, are you focused in your mental approach? Are you committed? to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You know, we've, uh, you know, in my past life, I've sat on the fence, and it's a very uncomfortable uncom position to be in. But once you commit, once you make that surrender, Dr. Meredith has talked about it, Mr. Armstrong spoke about it, unconditional surrender, where you surrender 
your whole mind, body, soul, and spirit to God from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes. And you don't hold back anything. You don't say to God when you're being baptized, well, I'm going to give you my whole body, but I'm going to reserve my little finger to do whatever I want with it. And I'm going to give you all of my time, 24 hours a day, except for 30 seconds, and I'm going to do what I want to do, my own thing, in that 30 seconds. It has to be complete. It has to be total. It must be unconditional surrender, total surrender to God. We cannot be double-minded. We need to be focused and committed. So we must seek wisdom, and God promises us to give, a, uh, give us wisdom. We have in our sermon library, by the way, number 39, Seven Keys to Wisdom by Dr. Meredith, number 238, Godly Wisdom, number 359, Seven Pillars of Wisdom by Dr. Winnale. Let's turn over the page here to James, the third chapter, James 3. And he tells us about two kinds of wisdom. There is uh, heavenly, as it's called here in the uh, subtitle, versus demonic wisdom. Uh, verse 13 of James 3. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, and how much have we seen... Even administratively, some uh, people who've had selfish ambition, which is one of the fruits of the flesh, not one of the fruits of the Spirit. We had a couple of uh, ministers who said, well, I wasn't made regional director, and he was not even in that same region. And he says, I'm out of here. He had selfish ambition. Another local elder was uh, disappointed because he was not made pastor of the congregation when his pastor was transferred. And he left. It exposed their selfish ambition. If you are self-seeking in your hearts, you know, you're not willing to serve as we heard in the sermonette, then we'll be happy. Whatever position we're in, whether we're washing someone's feet as a servant, you know, we will be happy because we have a foot-washing, serving attitude. Do not boast and lie against the truth. Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the wisdom from above is going to have the fruit of peace. I remember the first time, again, I shouldn't digress tell you all these stories, but I remember the first time when I was asking God for that because I had to make a decision. We arrived uh, with the ambassador students. I was president of the ambassador corral and leading the students as we arrived one day late and then midnight uh, at uh, the um, Grand Canyon in Arizona after being at the feast in Big Sandy in 1963. And uh, two ambassador students came to me and they said, uh, you know, Dick, he said, they said, we want to go down to the Grand Canyon and uh, walk all the way down and back, you know, tomorrow. I said, oh, well, what do I do? You know, do I let them go down there or not? You know, maybe they'll never come back. Or what? So I said, I think God did give me wisdom. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, you be here before sunrise tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, come to my, my room. And if you're here at 6 o'clock... I'll decide then whether you can go down. So they were at 6 o'clock, and I said, okay, you can go down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, but you better be back up here by sunset. 
So I won't, I'll know that you're okay. And come to my room, you know, by sunset. So sunset came, and they didn't come to my door. And I said, oh, I've made the wrong decision. But they came about 20 minutes late, and they said, well, we came back up an upper path. We were back up here by sunset, but we had to walk about a mile to get back here we, to your, your dormitory. So anyway, I was pleased that God helped me in making that decision. I hope you pray for wisdom every day. You know, God uh, gives us wisdom, and we honor him by using wisdom, which leads to peace. Let's turn to Proverbs, the 15th chapter. I'll tell you another story. I may have told you that story before. But when I was uh, working as a transportation engineer and uh, living at Virginia Beach, it was about a mile from the beach at a, my landlady's uh, house, apartment, and uh, I was commuting, taking a bus, and I had to walk about a mile from Virginia Beach to, to my apartment on the lake. It was very nice, very pleasant. But as I was walking, this uh, got almost near to my apartment in this uh, house. There were two apartments, the landlady and, and uh, myself, and the apartment in her house. And this boy started throwing rocks at me. And uh, I said, is this boy throwing rocks at me? And another one whizzed by my head. And I said, yes, this boy is throwing rocks at me. <laughs> and so I went over and squeezed his hand so he dropped all the stones that were in his hand. And as I just started walking into the driveway, this huge Eldorado Cadillac uh, convertible came by, and this huge guy in Bermuda, Bermuda shorts and hairy legs. He said, did you touch my boy? I said, your boy was throwing rocks at me. And, of course, having played football, I was starting to get my, my macho football uh, attitude up towards him. I started to go towards him, and uh, I remembered the proverb, because I've been studying proverbs every day. Uh, when I was there, Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I think God helped me, and I said, I'm sorry, sir. He said, well, don't let it happen again. You know, and he left. You know, I could have gotten, uh, you know, I don't know how he would have end up, uh, you know, uh, ended up, or how I would have ended up, but nonetheless, wisdom from God produces peace, as we saw in James, the third chapter. I tell you another story while I was there. Um, Psalm 121, verse 8. Of course, Psalm 121 is one that I've memorized, and if I can't go to sleep, sometimes I, I uh, recite that in bed. But at the time, uh, that same apartment uh, there in, uh, on a lake there in Virginia Beach, I forgot my key and I locked myself out. And I remembered what I had prayed in Psalm 121, in verse 8, it says, The Eternal shall preserve your going out and your coming in. And I said, Well, Father, I can't come in to my apartment, but you promised that you would bless my going out and my coming in. Anyway, I discovered a, a door where the furnace was, and it had stairs going up to my apartment, and it had one of those little hook keys, and I just put my uh, credit card in and flipped the hook key and came in. So God blessed me and let me in. And we, the, God, the eternal shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth. God gives us wonderful promises. But we do need God's wisdom. And while we're here in Proverbs, which turned, uh, well, we were, back Proverbs uh, 13, uh, one that you're familiar with, Proverbs 13 and verse 20, we need to seek godly wisdom. Verse 20, Proverbs 13, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. 
And that reminds me over the page, I didn't have this in my notes, but Proverbs 18 and verse 1. It has happened to so many of the splinter groups because they haven't had the kind of iron sharpens iron counsel of wise men. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he rages against all wise judgment. And oh, has that happened to so many of the splinter groups because they become an end or an authority in themselves and will not listen to wise judgment. It's a very important verse. And uh, we really appreciate, again, having a council of elders, the spokesman club that we have, where we can iron sharpens iron, and we can test one another and keep one another on the track. So we've talked about seeking knowledge, we've talked about seeking wisdom, but can you control your thoughts? Let's turn to, um, well, we'll do that a little later. Uh, Let's go to Romans, the uh, eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. Of course, you know where we're going there. Another memorization verse, Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It's the fleshly mind. It's the mind that goes the way with the world. Yes, there is, uh, in human nature, there is good and evil, but the carnal mind is hostile against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. How many of your thoughts are carnal in a day? How many thoughts do you have in a day? Okay, another research question. Estimates range from a low of 12,000 to 80,000. And, uh, of course, that's a wide enough range to be almost meaningless, but Richard Carlson in his book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff. No, it's not all small stuff, Mr. Carlson, but much of it is. I agree with him. He writes, it has been estimated that the average human being has about 50,000 thoughts per day. That's on page 165 of his book. Another book by Michael Clarkson on page 5, Quick Fixes for Everyday Fears. He writes, quote, the average person has 66,000 thoughts per day. Two-thirds of them, he writes, are negative. He writes, are negative. The University of Wisconsin research shows that the things people worry about, 40% are about things that never occur, 30% are about things from the past, 12% are needless concerns about health, 10% are petty and miscellaneous cares, and only 8% are legitimate concerns. In other words, most worry is wasted, even counterproductive energy. So you didn't know you had 50 or 60,000 thoughts in a day. How many of them are carnal? How many of them are hostile towards God? How many of them, on the other hand, loving and supportive, honoring, obedient to God's way and His commandments? Romans 8 and verse 6. We've read read Romans 8 and verse 7. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, some people just, uh, you know, just uh, don't really think. Uh, IBM, uh, years ago, you know, and they had a logo was T-H-I-M-K. Is it, when you looked at it, you had the thimk, and it supposedly made you think. And they had that throughout all their IBM offices or around the world. But some people just don't, they're lazy, they don't think. It reminds me of the saying by Marie von Ebner Eschenbach, 
Even a stopped clock is right twice every day. After some years, it can boast of a long series of successes. <clears throat> and uh, others who, you know, really don't face up to reality, Charles Schultz, uh, who wrote, uh, you know, the comic strip Peanuts, uh, wrote, Don't worry about the world coming to an end today. It's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> wow. That's just a trick question here. Thought. So what are your thoughts like? Uh, from the Dictionary of Thoughts, and this is Isaac Taylor, thinking, not growth, makes manhood. Accustom yourself, therefore, to thinking. Set yourself to understand whatever you see and read. To join thinking with reading is one of the first maxims and one of the easiest operations. And today people don't read all that much. We, uh, my wife and I are visiting... Um, a nephew, and uh, he's uh, age seven, I think, and uh, his mother had him read to us from the book of Daniel. And he was reading the book of Daniel better, he, his, his uh, mother said, you know, he reads better than his father does. But uh, he was reading very fluently, you know, all of the four-syllable words and, and so forth. Reading is very important, and I hope that uh, we... I feel guilty in reading books because I think it takes up too much time. But, you know, you read a little bit every day. I, of course, I read a lot in researching and uh, preparing uh, sermons and telecasts and articles and so forth. Here's one on thought by A.B. Alcott. Thought means life, since those who do not think do not live in any high or real sense. Thinking makes the man. So I hope that we are thinking that we're using our minds to our God's honor and His glory. How does God think? Let's turn to Jeremiah, the 29th chapter. Jeremiah 29, as I quoted my wife uh, some time ago, that one of the greatest blessings we have is that we can think the thoughts of God. One of the greatest blessings God gives us is the ability to think the way He thinks. In fact, we're told to repent which means to turn around our way of thinking to God's way of thinking. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. Of course, this is speaking of the time when the Babylonian captivity would be completed. In verse 11, Jeremiah 29, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captivity to captive. Oh, God wants us to be willing to take correction because his ultimate purpose is to bring peace, that we can learn how to be peace if we learn the lessons we need to learn. So what thoughts should we really have? What does the Bible reveal about Christ's mind? And what was his purpose and his character like? Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2. As we saw in the sermonette, our attitude must be one of service, and certainly that is brought out here in Philippians 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but <clears throat> emptied himself, as the margin has, but made of himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The mind of Christ was one of service. Can you apply that mind, that attitude, every day? Let's turn to Philippians 4. Of course, you know the thoughts that God gives us in Philippians, the fourth chapter. <clears throat> he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. Then verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result is fantastic. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The fact that you request anything from God and you do it with thanksgiving is an act of faith because you're thanking God, in essence, for the privilege of asking, but you're also thanking Him for an anticipated answer to your request. And that brings about peace. If any of you here are anxious, take this verse, you know, when you go home, and read it, pray about it, and ask God for that peace of mind. I won't turn there, but Proverbs, I mean, sorry, Isaiah 26, 3, that he that has his mind stayed on the Lord will have perfect peace. That's a paraphrase of, uh, of Isaiah 26, 3. I remember a minister years ago giving a, <clears throat> a sermon, quoting that scripture, and uh, he was, uh, I guess, somehow getting into the car and slammed the door on his leg. And he thought of Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Uh, I better read that quickly. I'm going uh, to hold my place there. But uh, it was very difficult as he was in pain and trying to say, well, if I focus on God, I'll have perfect peace. 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I know at times, I don't know how many of you, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but when you have an accident and when you're injured, what do you say other than, ouch, or uh, I'm in pain or yelling? One of the things I say is, Father, forgive me. And one time I, I rushed, and it was, we, I was rushing, and I had this little old uh, Opal uh, Buick uh, car um, that I used to, to commute to uh, college classes down in Nacogdoches, a 90-mile drive. But I was in a rush, and uh, the, the window was partly down, and somehow, in rushing into the car, slamming the door, I caught my ear in the, the glass frame, and it was excruciating. And I closed the door, and I yelled, and I said, Father, forgive me! I'm sorry! I'm sorry! And within seconds, the pain just went away. You know, it was miraculous that, uh, what happened there because sometimes when accidents happen to us, we don't want to take any responsibility for it. And as Dr. Meredith has written, one of the greatest laws of radiant health is avoid bodily injury. And uh, hopefully we can be more careful and apply that. In Philippians, 
He tells us what to think or how to think in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Think on these things. Do we really think of substantive issues? Do we think of those things that are true and lovely? You know, I think the things that are lovely. I, when I think of all the beautiful places I've been and seen around the world, I think of my dream as a boy to see the Matterhorn in Switzerland. And finally, my wife and I were, and mother-in-law were able to go there and, and see that crag of a rock just rising up there in the mountains in Switzerland. And then to see in Hanalei Bay in uh, Kauai was pouring rain. And that morning, my wife and I opened up our door and and a beautiful rainbow just came from the bay down below, right up above. And some of those beautiful scenes that are part of my memory, and I hope a part of what you've seen in beauty in, in life, and you appreciate that beauty. You think on those things, and you realize God created beauty. But we need to have the mind of Christ with an attitude of service. We need to maintain a positive attitude. We need to always express thanksgiving. But we do have challenges to our thinking. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And uh, Dr. Meredith, Mr. Partian, the old-timers know about those, uh, you know, back in the old days. And not so much just uh, historic, but carries on through days today. That those who are writers, those who are church members doing their own research, coming up with their own new doctrines that are not attached to the trunk of the tree, and they make them, that's my baby. And when it is exposed as being fraudulent or as being incorrect or wrong, they're upset, offended, because their baby, their doctrine, their research that they worshipped and was part of theirs has been shown to be incorrect. 2 Corinthians 10. Remember, we just heard uh, Dr. Meredith's comments on the spirit war in the Tomorrow's World magazine about these intellectuals that uh, do not have their knowledge on the foundation of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's a challenge for all of us. If we have 60,000 thoughts a day, I know how many of those thoughts are in obedience to Christ. God wants us to be creative. He wants us to dream and to imagine. And I've told you before about my dream house that uh, one camper did uh, up there at uh, Orr, Minnesota, at uh, SEP, Summer Educational Program. I was teaching the uh, Christian Living classes, and I said, now, if you want a Tomorrow's World Award, you can write a poem about Tomorrow's World, or you can design your dream house. And uh, Be Betsy Docton uh, designed this two A-frames with a, a swinging bridge between the two A-frames, the waterfall coming out of the third floor, coming down to the second floor, and then down on the dining room in the first floor where there were fish that you could get and uh, an apiary and media room and, and everything else. She was dreaming. And uh, that two A-frames is kind of my dream house, too. 
I, of course, I might make some modifications. But yes, we, God wants us to be creative. He wants us to design, to design and think, but not creative against His commandments and against the sound doctrine that the Bible teaches. No, we, uh, let's continue here in verse 3. Verse uh, 6, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The Apostle Paul is taking to task here uh, some of the wrong thoughts that we might have, and we have to make sure that we are alert and careful because 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 also addresses this issue of <clears throat> thoughts. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you seem to be wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may be wise. And sometimes, uh, you know, at headquarters, um, Mr. Amen at uh, PCD will, and Dr. Meredith and I and Dr. Winnale and several of us will get all these weird doctrinal or prophecy papers. You know, and these individuals think that they are wise. And God says, look, if you want to really understand the truth, you better become as a fool. In other words, humble yourself. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That is, the humanly wise. Therefore, let no one boast in all men, for all things are yours. So again, we have to make sure that we avoid, as the heading has here, worldly wisdom. Dr. Winnell wrote in uh, his article, Seven Lessons from Seven Churches, this characteristic of uh, Laodiceans in the LCN, January, February 2007. Seven Lessons from Seven Churches. He writes, The charge against the Laodiceans is their lukewarm attitude. Revelation 3.16 Their wealth and prosperity fosters an attitude of worldliness. They are lukewarm about the truth, about obedience to the commandments, stability and unity, yet it is internally divided. It's independent-minded people. Now, let's understand, God wants us to be independent in the sense that we have the characteristic of initiative, that we have the characteristic of the fifth law of success, resourcefulness. But we are not independently minded in the sense of going off the trunk of the tree into twigs that take us off to be shunted about by every wind of doctrine. And so Dr. Winnale writes, It's independent-minded people unknowingly reject the leadership of Jesus Christ as they do their own thing. The democratic people deciding aspects of the Laodicean era can pertain to decisions about doctrine, organization, governance, mission, and methods. This lukewarm attitude is prophesied to be dominant, the church of God at the end of the age. The lesson of Laodicea is urgent. Dr. Winnell writes, Wake up before it is too late and ask God to open your eyes to see your own spiritual condition. Repent of complacency, compromise, materialism, and stubborn independence. And uh, frankly, brethren, we're seeing some of that in the ministry, in the churches, uh, stubborn independence. Let it not happen to you. Respond to the leadership of Jesus Christ and do not lose your reward. The Laodiceans need to repent of their governmental independence. They need to submit to God's way and to God's will. We must control our attitudes. And again, uh, you may want to 
take that uh, sermon from our sermon library, uh, The Trunk of the Tree, and uh, not get way out on uh, the twigs. We do need to take time to <clears throat> meditate and to think. Uh, what should you think about? Again, Psalm 1. <clears throat> we sing that song, Psalm 1. Again, one of those psalms that I will recite if I can't get to sleep. I recite it at other times when I'm awake, too. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. How many are scornful today? You know, uh, Mr. Party in, in his uh, sermon on uh, how to remain in the church, he gave on the last day of unleavened bread. He brings out the problems of human beings, the leaven of the heart of stubbornness, of rebellion, and covetousness. He emphasized those three elements. And again, I recommend you hear his sermon if you haven't on how to remain in a church and overcome those elements of leaven that have taken people out of the church. He focused on those three elements, uh, rebellion, pride, and covetousness. But he goes on to say, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. Psalm 1, verse 2. <clears throat> so again, uh, I hope, brethren, that you meditate. It's not the uh, kind of Eastern meditation where you're supposed to empty your mind of everything. That's not godly meditation. In fact, I hope you will uh, listen to our sermons. Number 203, godly meditation. Uh, number 300, the power of meditation. You want your mind to think of God's Word. And I've told you that quotable quote before. QQ by Dr. Meredith. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. And, of course, parents in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6 it is, they're teaching their children every day as they stand up, as they walk by the way, teaching them godly principles. And uh, many of us here at headquarters read one chapter of Proverbs a day. So we're reading through the whole book of Proverbs, you know, in 31 days. So we do need to take time to think. I... Uh, as you know, I do like uh, Calvin and Hobbes, and this particular one, Calvin is, and Hobbes are sitting under a tree. And they're just kind of relaxing with their backs against the tree. And Calvin says to Hobbes, the tiger, why do you suppose we're here? And uh, Hobbes, the tiger, says, because we walked here. And, tiger said, and then tiger, I mean, Calvin says, no, no, I mean here on earth. Why are we here on earth? And Hobbes says, because earth can support life. And Hobbes says, no, Calvin says, no, I mean, why are we anywhere? Why do we exist? And the tiger says, because we were born. And Calvin gives up. He says, forget it. And uh, Hobbes, the tiger, says, I will. Thank you. <clears throat> now, at least Calvin had the right questions. He didn't get the answers from uh, Hobbes or, or anyone else. So we need to take time to think. And I won't ask you to raise your hands. How many, how many of you actually take time to think? You know, I shouldn't tell all my secrets, but, you know, sometimes I walk around the building and sometimes I'll come up and get a cup of coffee and I'll go down the stairs here and in the afternoon and sit on the stairs in the sunshine, sipping my coffee and thinking and sometimes praying. I hope you all do that sometime or other. You know, the old saying, stop and smell the roses. 
So I hope we can meditate on God's law day and night as David did. And, of course, the uh, kings, you know, in Deuteronomy 17 were required to write, handwrite a copy of the law so that they would not forget the law. Your greatest physical possession is your mind. And that's God's precious gift to you and it's God's precious gift to me and we have a responsibility to take care of that mind and body. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the first chapter. 2 Timothy 1. Our very character is centered in our minds. God has given us each willpower. He's given us the freedom to choose. And he says, you know, in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you. I have set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. We need to pray for God's will to be done in our lives. Second Timothy, the first chapter, tells us about spiritual mindedness. Second Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And he tells us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So as we prepare as kings and priests for tomorrow's world, we need to visualize the educational system tomorrow. We need to think about true knowledge as we will teach the world tomorrow about the way to peace as we re-educate the whole world. The world needs true knowledge, and we're pioneering that way of knowledge. We have to grow in knowledge, as he tells us in 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to meditate on God's Word. Mr. Herbert Armstrong was given an award by King Leopold. It was a watch. He'd given four, three of them, and this was the fourth that he contributed to those men that he felt contributed the most to world peace. In 1970, His Majesty Leopold III presented the fourth watch to Herbert W. Armstrong. In accepting it, Mr. Armstrong said, quote, I feel it was the highest honor the king could have paid anyone. Whatever contribution to world peace I may be making is not through war, but through education, teaching millions worldwide the way to peace. That's the calling we've been given. We've been called to be peacemakers. We've been called to honor God in our body, in our spirit, in our soul, and mind, and we're to worship God in spirit and in truth, because He seeks such to worship Him. So, brethren, let's worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let's honor God and love God with a fully healthy spiritual mind.